Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Genesis 26 this morning. We normally invite you guys to remain standing while we read scripture. This is a bit of a longer chapter, so we figured we'd invite you to sit. I'm just going to read it over us, and then we'll jump in. So if you want to follow along, this will be Genesis 26, and I'm going to go ahead and read that entire chapter. It says, Now there is a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men in the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. 
and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. For you are the, now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us, then we'll jump in. Father, very simply, I just ask that you would teach us through these ancient stories how we can walk faithfully through life with you in our own day. Give us eyes to see, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, later this year, Amazon will celebrate its 30th birthday. So for some of you, that means you've never lived in a world without Amazon. For others, you did live in a world without Amazon, but I'm guessing that that world seems like such a distant memory. Amazon has become so much an ordinary daily part of our lives that it's really hard to imagine what life was like or would be like without it. If you're under 30 years old, you might not even know, or if you're over 30, you might have known but forgotten that Amazon started out as just an online bookstore competing against brick and mortar stores like Barnes and Noble. But after five years, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, wanted to grow and expand, so they expanded beyond books, and in 1998, they began selling CDs and DVDs. Then in 1999, Amazon introduced third-party selling to their website, which was originally just a way for people to find rare, antique, vintage, collectible books, but they didn't limit it to just books, and so they kind of opened it up to anything, and that's when people began selling anything and everything on Amazon. They really started to pick up steam and see some growth. The next big opportunity for Amazon came in 2003 when other companies like Target wanted to use Amazon's website as a template for their own. And so Amazon launched a web hosting department, which today dominates the cloud hosting market and is one of Amazon's biggest revenue creators. Then in 2004, after 10 years of being a company, Amazon had lost money every single year. They finally had a profitable year in 2004, which led the Washington Post to take notice and write an article about Amazon where they said, quote, Amazon's strategy of offering discounted prices and free shipping on some purchases finally seems to be paying off after years of doubts. The article also mentioned how Amazon was kind of a unicorn. They were trying to do three things at once. They wanted to compete against Barnes and Noble and Best Buy by selling books and DVDs. They wanted to compete against Walmart and eBay by selling everything under the sun and doing it online. And they wanted to compete against IBM and Microsoft by hosting other companies' websites on their own platform. And Amazon was making it. They were doing all of these things well, but they were still a much smaller company than every single one of those other companies that I just mentioned. The biggest comparison, the best comparison to Amazon in 2004 was eBay. And in 2004, eBay was worth $33 billion, while Amazon was worth $18 billion. 
Now, if your company's worth $18 billion, you're doing something right, but if your biggest competitor is worth double that, then there's room to grow. Maybe you're gonna get bought out, maybe you're not gonna make it. And that led the Washington Post article to kind of conclude at the end and say, Amazon is at a crossroads. People were genuinely wondering in 2004, is this gonna work? Are they gonna make it? What are they going to do next? And we get to look back 20 years later, we know the end of the story, right? We know they navigated that crossroads pretty well. Um, it did work out well for them. Today, Amazon is worth close to $2 trillion, while eBay is worth $30 billion, which is less than what it was worth in 2004. So what changed that led Amazon to become one of the biggest companies, most valuable companies in the history of the world while their biggest competitor has stayed stagnant for 20 years? There are, of course, several factors that go into something like this, but most experts point to one factor as the biggest, Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime launched in February 2005, which is about one year after this Washington Post article, and it was the first of its kind service. At that time, Amazon began offering people the opportunity to purchase a membership for unlimited free two-day shipping with no minimum purchase requirement for just $79 a year. In a letter to his customers, founder and CEO Jeff Bezos called Amazon Prime all-you-can-eat express shipping. He told customers, Prime takes the effort out of ordering. No minimum purchase, no consolidating orders. Two-day shipping becomes an everyday experience rather than an occasional indulgence. There are two things Amazon wanted to achieve with Prime. They wanted to make stuff, buying stuff from Amazon quick, and they wanted to make it easy. As they say, the rest is history, right? Today, one in four Americans purchases something on Amazon every single week. Amazon owns close to 40% of the e-commerce market share, meaning 40% of every single product purchased online is bought on Amazon. And 65% of Americans 18 or older have access to a Prime membership. It costs more, of course, it's $130 a year now, but last year in 2003, over 50% of Prime purchases were delivered the same day or the next day. Amazon has quite literally changed the world. We can now purchase almost anything we want from wherever we are and have it delivered to us the same day, the next day, maybe two days if something's wrong, without paying for shipping. It's quick and it's easy. And it's not just Amazon, of course. Almost everything in our world has begun to work this day. It's the way we get, the way we get food through services like DoorDash and Instacart or the way we communicate through email or text messages or the way we watch shows and movies on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I've heard rumors from my par parents, maybe others of you know this as well, that when they were kids, they had to wait until Saturday morning to watch cartoons because that's the only time they were on TV. But now we can pull out that thing in our pocket and pull up cartoons for our kids anytime and anywhere. There are very few spaces left in our world where we have to wait or where things are not designed to be as easy as possible. And there's good and there's bad to all of these technologies. They've certainly made our lives better in many ways and they've had unintended negative consequences in others. I'm not here to tell you to stop buying stuff on Amazon or stop watching Netflix or anything like that this morning. I was joking with someone between services. I was trying to think of how many packages either showed up to this church or to my house this week while I was writing a sermon about Amazon. But what I want us to consider where we're going this morning, what I want us to consider is 
what is this age of Amazon where everything is designed to be quick and easy doing to our spiritual lives? Instant, easy access to whatever we want, whenever we want it, has become so normal to us that we don't even realize that this was not the way life worked for human beings who have ever lived in the past before us. And how is this instant, easy access to everything shaping our walk with God? Is this age of Amazon, the spirit of instant, easy access, compatible with deep, meaningful life in Christ or incompatible? Does it help us and make it easier for us to grow or does it provide some obstacles? I think what we'll see this morning is that the way that God often works in our lives to grow us and to shape us and to deepen our life in him is radically different than the way Amazon works. And because the way of Amazon has become so normal for us, it can make our relationship with God and growth in Christ often feel difficult or strained or hard or like something just isn't working right. Because deep, meaningful life in Christ doesn't come quick or easy. It can't be purchased with one click and show up in a brown box the next morning. Life with God growing into our relationship with Christ is a long game. It's filled with ups and downs. There's good and bad. It's not always easy. But I think many of you would also agree that life with God ultimately brings us the joy that Amazon tries to sell us, one product at a time. And somehow Isaac's story from Genesis 26, which you just read, where there's a lot of stuff going on in there that makes no sense to us, when Amazon is still 4,000 years away, somehow this story, I think, actually helps us see what life with God actually looks like and is instructive for us. So let's dive in and just kind of walk through and summarize this story and then see, apply how we can apply this story to our lives when it comes to following God in our own day. So last week, if you were here, we kicked off our Life of Jacob series, and we looked at the end of chapter 25 with the birth of Jacob and his brother Esau. And if you missed last week's sermon, I'd highly encourage you to go back and listen to that on the podcast. It was a really challenging and encouraging sermon and also just sets up where this Life of Jacob series is going to go. And now this week is almost like an extended introduction or introduction part two, because if you were listening closely as I read chapter 26, you know how many times Jacob in this Life of Jacob series was mentioned? Zero times. We're leaving Jacob aside for one month or for one week, not for a month, and going back to Jacob's father, Isaac. And what we'll see in this chapter is some of these big themes that are just going to keep showing up over and over again each week in this series. So chapter 26 starts out with a really ominous beginning. It says, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. I don't know about you, but when I read about famines in the Bible, sometimes it's easy for me to just kind of read over it and think that was a minor inconvenience, but not that big of a deal. It's hard for me to think about how serious this actually would have been because for most of us, we've never worried about a single meal in our lives. Famine is not really a serious threat to us, and so it's hard for us to feel the emotion of this situation. But if we think about it for just a moment, you've got this family, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, and they are hunting and gathering every single meal they have. There's no Amazon, no Walmart, no Chick-fil-A, no refrigerators, no pantries. Every meal they eat has to be grown, hunted, gathered, and or cooked all on their own. And now there's a famine. 
there's likely a lack of rain, which leads to a lack of plants, which leads to a lack of food. And not only do they not have a grocery store to get this food, they also don't have modern transportation. There's no car, planes, or trains that can take them to another city where they might be able to farm better. And so it's a really serious and bleak situation. There's very little food in their own country, and traveling to find food would be long and difficult. There's a very real possibility that the conclusion of this story is that they die. And so facing death, Isaac packs up his family and they go do what anyone would do. They go in search of food. And they come first to Gerar, which is a Philistine city where Abimelech is king. And as Isaac and his family are there in Gerar, God appears to him and speaks to him as he did previously to Abraham and will do to Jacob, as we'll see. And the message that God gives him is, don't go to Egypt, stay here in Gerar, and I will be with you. I will establish the covenant I made with Abraham, with you. I will give you this land and multiply your offspring, and all the earth shall be blessed. And there's a lot of important context here in the message that God has for Isaac. First, what God's doing is he's re-upping this covenant that he made with Abraham, with Abraham now to Isaac. Jeff mentioned this last week, but earlier in the book of Genesis, God had revealed himself to this man named Abraham and given him a promise to, to grow a special land and a special mission for this people in order to be a blessing for the entire world. And looking back, we know that that people would become the nation of Israel, and the ultimate way they would be a blessing is by producing Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, and Lord over all. And it's likely Isaac grew up hearing these stories. He would have heard his dad, Abraham, telling him about God and about what God had promised to do through him and his family. And now God is speaking directly to Isaac, and he's re-upping that covenant with him. Something that's really easy to miss in this exchange is that this famine doesn't just mean that Isaac and his family might die, but if Isaac and his family die, that means that God's promise will also fail. If Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau die, then God's promise will not come to pass. It means God was wrong, or he was unfaithful, or he wasn't real. Either way, he wouldn't have been who Abraham and Isaac trusted him to be. And so when God comes to Isaac and gives him this message, it should have encouraged him, we're going to make it, God's going to see us through. But at the same time, I'm sure he was still full of fear. He likely wanted to believe it was true that God was going to sustain his family and that this promise would come to pass and he would see it fulfilled. But how could he know for certain? They were facing famine. They had no food. They were potentially about to die. Another important contextual piece of God's message to Isaac is that God specifically tells Isaac, don't go to Egypt, stay here. And again, it's really easy to kind of just read over that, but this is actually really significant because even though the narrator doesn't tell us explicitly, this message assumes that what Isaac wanted to do was head for Egypt, that Gerar was just a stopover on the way, but they were really going to Egypt. And that makes a lot of sense because in Egypt was known in that day as this extremely fertile land and that Egypt had established government structures where they could store up and distribute food during famine, which will become really significant later in the book of Genesis. The land in Gerar, by contrast, was just like where Isaac came from. It was likely experiencing famine, just like where they left. It was dry, it was arid, it was not a great place to farm. So put yourself in Isaac's shoes for just a minute. You're out of food, there's a famine, there's nothing you can do. You're facing death, and death 
will mean the end of the promise that God gave to your family. And thus, God is not faithful, God is wrong, God is not real. And you've heard about this land of Egypt where there's a bunch of food and there's storehouses of food. And so that's where you're going. That's what you're gonna do to ensure that God is faithful to his promise that he sustains your family. You're gonna go find food where there's food. But God says, yeah, I know Egypt has plenty of food, but I want you to stay here in Gerar. And looking back on the story, we know the outcome, so it seems simple and easy to us. Isaac trusts God. I mean, wouldn't you if God came and spoke to you? But nothing about this is easy or simple. It would have taken incredible faith on Isaac's part to believe that God was still true, was still going to see his promises come to pass, and that since God told us to stay here where there's no food, instead of going to where there is food, I guess we should do it. Isaac chooses faith in the end, but I have no doubt that there was this push and pull and that he was still fearful and worried about whether he made the right choice. In fact, every step in this story is this mix of faith and fear. What happens next is that Isaac chooses to believe in God. He makes this incredibly difficult decision and stays in Gerar. But then he turns right around and makes a poor choice based purely on on fear, not on faith. Just like Abraham, Isaac's dad, did with Sarah, Isaac goes to Gerar and he chooses to tell the men of the city that Rebekah is his sister, not his wife, because he's afraid that if they know she is his wife, they will kill him and take her for themselves. And there's so much in this story that on the one hand just feels so foreign and weird to us that we are so confused about what is even going on, but then on the other hand resonates so deeply with us. And I think this is one of those places. On the one hand, I've never once gone somewhere with my wife and uh, husbands, I think you could probably say the same, where I thought that I needed to lie and say she's my sister or else someone was going to kill me and take her for themselves. That's just weird. That doesn't happen in our world today. On the other hand, though, I do see this same tension between faith and fear that Isaac experienced in this story pretty much every day in my own life. In verse six, Isaac displays radical faith. In verse seven, he's overtaken by paralyzing fear. Can you relate to that? And of course, it doesn't end well for Isaac. Abimelech sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing together as the ESV translates it, which is a euphemism that implies intimate physical touching in a way that you would never do with your sister. And so Isaac's lie is found out. He knows, Abimelech knows that Rebekah is Isaac's wife. He gets angry. And that leads to this ongoing tension between the two men. Then immediately following this part of the story, the writer tells us in verse 12, Isaac sowed in the land, remember the land of Gerar, the dry land that's experiencing famine, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Again, because we know the end of the story, it's easy to read it and say, yeah, of course, this is what happened. But by ordinary standards, this conclusion makes no sense. The land is dry. It's experiencing famine. The best case scenario is that Isaac and his family survive by the skin of their teeth. It finally rains at the last second. They're able to grow and find some food, and famine lets up, and they survive. More likely conclusion is that they die. But what actually happens is that Isaac chooses to stay in this land where famine is present and farming is difficult, Instead of going to Egypt and finding food, and he reaps a hundredfold crop, a record crop, even in the dry land. 
How is it possible? And it's because verse 12 says God blessed them. The pace of the narrative and the back and forth here really makes a point because in verse six, we have incredible faith. In verse seven through 11, it's incredible fear. And then verse 12, right on the heels of that is blessing from God. In other words, in Isaac's story and in Abraham's that we've seen and in Jacob's as we will see, it's not perfect obedience that leads to blessing. They are blessed by God's grace despite their own brokenness and poor choices. So continuing on, Isaac grows wealthy and Abimelech asks him to leave and we'll kind of pick up the pace here because this gets to this long section of digging wells and then arguing about wells and then going and finding more wells and digging different wells and arguing about wells again. And it's a totally foreign world to us. But also, can't you relate to the fact that once one part of life seems to get under control, there's just another curveball waiting right around the corner. First in this story, Isaac and his family lacked food, then God provided it. Now they lack safety. There's tension with others. Now they can't find water. They got food, which is one basic necessity. Now they don't have water, another basic necessity. And the promise and their lives are threatened all over again. But then again, in the midst of this uncertainty, God appears to Isaac. He says, fear not, I am with you. He re-ups the promise once again. And then we see in faith in verse 25, Isaac's servants start digging a well in this land that they've journeyed onto, but it ends on a cliffhanger. We aren't told whether or not they find water. And then while that's happening, Abimelech and his advisor, Phicol, come to Isaac, and they come to an agreement that finally leads to peace between those two people. So the problem of safety is solved. And then verse 32 says, that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him, we have found water. So God, once again, was true to his promises. He provides safety and water for Isaac and his family. And then again, the promise is threatened. Chapter 26 ends with a bit of foreshadowing when it says Esau took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, to be his wives, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau did what Abraham warned against and married foreign wives who do not know God, and the promise is threatened all over again. We'll have to wait until next week in chapter 27 to see how that shakes out. So what can we learn from this ancient story that has any relevance for our lives today? One of the things that strikes me about this chapter is that these stories, these events in this chapter, is it's through these that Isaac learns to trust God. You may remember something about Isaac's earlier life. There's this famous episode where Isaac, uh, Isaac's father, Abraham, has this incredible act of faith where he takes his son Isaac out to sacrifice him because God told him to. And this would have been an impossible thing for anyone to do, but it also, again, if he does this, would have ended the promise that God gave him. So it's an impossible situation for Abraham. But of course, Abraham trusts God and says, if God tells me to do this, I'm going to do it. You know the end of the story. God intervenes. He provides a lamb for the sacrifice instead. But that story is one of the most striking and famous acts of faith in all of human history, as Abraham was willing to trust God at any cost. And we don't know exactly how old Isaac was at the time, but we do know he was old enough to carry a bundle of wood. So he was likely a teenager. He's at least old enough to remember and to know this experience in his life. In other words, this radical act of faith that the world remembers today was a part of Isaac's heritage and his life story. But that was Abraham's faith. 
That was his dad's faith. That was his story. Up until the chapter we just looked at this morning, we've yet to see Isaac himself personally interact with God and begin to trust him. In other words, this story, these stories in chapter 26 is the time in Isaac's life, as far as we know, where God becomes personal to him and he learns to trust him and rely upon him. And what's so striking about this chapter is how God uses difficult events in Isaac's life to slowly and painfully grow his faith. You see this back and forth all throughout the chapter between faith and unbelief, God making promises and God being faithful to his promises. And it's not just Isaac's story. It's all over the book of Genesis. It's all over the pages of scripture. Christians for 2,000 years have testified to the fact that becoming a Christian, the life of faith does not mean that just one day we decide to trust Jesus and then we're suddenly transformed into the most mature Christian who just walks through life as if we were walking with God as a friend. Instead, a life of walking with God is a journey. It's a long game filled with bumps and ups and downs along the way. Faith isn't something that you don't have and then you have. It's this living, breathing thing that ebbs and flows all of our days. But that's really hard for us to swallow in the age of Amazon. Deep, meaningful life with God would be so much easier if we could just order it on Amazon and it showed up on our door tomorrow morning, wouldn't it? But it doesn't work that way. So Isaac's story is instructive for us. There's so much we could glean and take away from this story, but I've narrowed it down to just three things, the three truths for walking with God that were true for Isaac and are true for you and me as well, and are sharp contrasts with everything, uh, with the way that Amazon works. So number one, while Amazon works quickly and everything in our world seems to work quickly, God often works slowly. Isaac's story teaches us that God often works in slow and surprising ways. We see this all throughout Isaac's life. We see it in Abraham's life before him. Remember, God had promised to Abraham that he would, his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on a beach, but then Abraham and his wife are 90 and 100 years old and they don't have any children. How is that going to work? But God was faithful and he blessed them with a son named Isaac. Then Isaac and Rebekah are struggling to have children. They are growing older. Once again, it seems unlikely God is going to actually fulfill his promise, but then they conceive and give birth to Esau and Jacob. And then famine comes and threatens to end the promise. And then strife comes and threatens to end the promise. And dehydration and choosing the wrong spouse. But yet God continues to be faithful and provide over and over again. All throughout this story, we're supposed to see this tension between God's view of the situation where this was going to happen no matter what. The outcome was sure. But then Isaac's view where it never seems like this is actually going to be fulfilled. There are no quick fixes in this story. The promise that God gives to Isaac still isn't going to be fulfilled in Isaac's lifetime and won't fully be fulfilled for 2,000 more years. God is working slowly, and I don't think that's just true in Isaac's life. It's often true in our lives as well, but that's hard for us to grasp. I think what that means for us is there are no quick fixes in the spiritual life. There's no Bible reading plan, no book on prayer, no popular podcast that will finally unlock everything for us when it comes to our relationship with Christ and make it easy. One of my former pastors liked to compare uh, growth in the spiritual life to shaping rocks. And he would say, there's two ways to do that. There's two ways to shape a rock. You can take out a hammer and chisel, 
and break off large chunks at a time, or you can put a rock under water, a waterfall or a river, and it will be shaped over hundreds, thousands of years. And most often, our growth in the spiritual life is the, is the latter way. It's years and years of being under the water. Dramatic breakthrough moments where we're instantly changed forever can occur, but they're rare in the spiritual life. Slow growth that happens as we spend time with Jesus and his word and his church and his people is the norm, but it's extremely countercultural. With Amazon, if something doesn't work, we just buy something different. It comes the next day. We swap out the old for the new, and we move on. But that approach doesn't work in the spiritual life, even though we've all tried it, haven't we? We all seek out. It's just the next book, the next podcast, the next practice, next way to prayer journal, maybe the next church. But while Amazon works quickly, God often works slowly. But it's also in that slowness that God grows us. It's in the waiting for God to show up that we learn what it looks like to trust him. It's in the absence of quick fixes that we learn what it looks like to rely upon him. It's in our long obedience to Christ, to borrow Eugene Peterson's phrase, that God's presence becomes more and more and more of a tangible reality in our lives. So let's resist the urge to quick fix our way to deep, meaningful life with God and settle in for a slow, long, formative life with him. Second truth for walking with God that we see in this chapter is that while Amazon wants to eliminate anything hard, God wants to use what is hard to grow us. Amazon is what it is because they have sought to eliminate all friction when it comes to purchasing anything and everything. With Amazon, you don't have to drive to the store. You don't even have to stand up from the couch. With Amazon, you don't have to guess which product is best. They will tell you with Amazon, you don't have to price check. They will have the lowest price. You don't have to enter your payment information or your shipping information. They'll save it for you. And you don't have to wait very long to receive what you want. They'll get it to you as quickly as possible. For Amazon, friction is the enemy. The easier someone can purchase somewhat, something from them and have it arrive on their porch, the better. But Isaac's story shows us that in the life of faith, hard times are not things that can or even should be eliminated from life. Instead, in the life of faith, hard times are inevitable invitations. In the real world, hard things are inevitable. It's not possible for us to remove all friction for life, but in the age of Amazon, we are often so unprepared and caught off guard by hard things because everything in life is set up to be as easy as possible. If I'm buying something on Amazon and it's hard, something has gone wrong. But when it comes to our life with God, hard things do not mean anything's wrong. It just means we're human. Hard times don't mean God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that something's wrong or you lack faith. It doesn't mean God is a liar or isn't real. Hard times are inevitable reality of life on earth until Jesus returns. But when walking through life with God, hard times are also an invitation. If you're anything like me, it's much easier to see hard times as an obstacle to get around and avoid at all costs rather than something to go through. Um, our son, Jack, goes to a daycare program at another church once uh, one day a week. And this church's parking lot has the bumpiest speed bumps that I've ever driven over. And so do you know what I do and all the other parents do when we drive through the parking lot? We go around them. If there's empty parking spaces, you just go around the speed bumps. And Last week, I was driving out of the parking lot, 
And it's a lot easier to avoid these speed bumps on your way out. There's more room. There's usually empty spots over here. When you're coming in, if there's another car going out, you're kind of out of luck. You just have to go over these speed bumps. But I was driving out of the parking lot. This other car was coming in, and they were so determined not to go over these speed bumps that they went around me on the wrong side of the road, right up against the curb where people were walking. They, they didn't care about being embarrassed or looking ridiculous, anything like that. They were not going to drive over those speed bumps. And that's usually how we approach hard times in life, isn't it? Because we live in the age of Amazon, hard things are a problem to be resolved or something to be avoided at all costs. But where would Isaac have been without the hard things he faced in this chapter? I know it's ridiculous, but think about if Isaac had access to Amazon in his life. Famine wouldn't have mattered. He could have just ordered food on Amazon. Without famine, he wouldn't have had to go to Gerar and Without being in Gerar, he wouldn't have, God wouldn't have showed up and told him to stay here instead of going to Egypt, and they would have missed out on seeing God provide. Without having to leave their homeland, they wouldn't have experienced strife with the Philistines, or they wouldn't have had to have dug new wells and face dehydration, and again, they would have missed out on seeing God provide. I know it's ridiculous to think about if Isaac had Amazon, but I genuinely think if he did have Amazon, his life would have been easier but his God would have been more distant. The difficulty that Isaac faced in his life was hard, but it was also an invitation into deeper life with God, and it was an invitation that Isaac accepted. Uh, This is for me more than anyone else, but I wonder if one of the reasons that we don't tangibly see God show up more in our lives is because we haven't given him room to do so. We've orchestrated everything in our lives all on our own, and when hard times come up, we orchestrate solutions on our own, and we don't give God a chance to show that he's faithful. What I think we learn from Isaac is that our faith becomes more personal, becomes more real, becomes more of a living reality when we learn to trust God with the hard stuff of life. Our faith grows, God becomes more real to us when Our first response to the bill we can't pay is not to run to the budget like me and move numbers around and see how we can pay it. It's to trust God and to go on our knees in prayer. Our faith becomes more real when our reaction to major disappointments in life is not despair on one hand or sugarcoating it on the other, but it's to bring it to God with open hands, ready for his comfort and ready to see what he'll do next. Hard times are inevitable invitations in life with God. And last truth for life with God that we see in this story is that while Amazon sells the good life, God freely offers it. You've probably seen these slogans that Amazon added to their delivery vans a year ago. The two that I'm thinking of back here are, warning, contents may cause happiness. And then that thing you wanted, it's right in here. What's the message Amazon's trying to sell us? It's that happiness or whatever you want in life can be bought from us. Last week, Jeff ended his introduction to this series with a a series of questions for us, and one of them was, where are you trying to get the good life in your own strength? And the answer, according to Amazon, on where you find the good life is simple. You buy it from us. The good life is available on Amazon. We have all the books, music, movies, podcasts, water bottles, clothes, vitamins, toys, utensils, gadgets, household decor, you name it, in order to be happy all one click and one day away. And it works, doesn't it? 
Shopping on Amazon does make us happy. It distracts us from the realities of life. It releases dopamine in our brains that makes us feel happier. But there's a catch, right? It's shallow, temporary happiness. Anxiety goes away while we're shopping or when the box arrives, but then it floods back in when the worries of life come back. Just like scrolling on social media when we're shopping on Amazon, our nervous system gets so much dopamine, it gets used to it. And then it's harder to enjoy slower things in life, like reading a book, taking a walk. Amazon gives us joy, but it comes at a cost. There's always a financial, emotional, spiritual cost to seeking the good life in places it can't be found. It's not just shopping on Amazon, of course. There's so many places we look for the good life apart from God. But in Isaac's story, he found what he was looking for, not by purchasing it or by earning it. It came by grace. And that's one of the themes that we're going to continue to come back to in this series over and over again is just how mixed ba- a mixed bag the characters in this story are. As we saw, this Isaac's life was this whiplash between faith and fear. He showed incredible faith to stay in Gerar, but incredible fear when he lied about Rebekah. But the response of God to Isaac's faith and his fear were the same. When Isaac was faithful, God was faithful. When Isaac was fearful, God was still faithful. And what we'll see over and over again in this series is that goodness, blessing, significance, and meaning cannot be obtained apart from God. We can try and hack our way to the good life. We can try and purchase it through products on Amazon, but it never works. The things that make up the good life are only found in the one who is supremely good. The best part is that it's free. On the one hand, that's really frustrating to me. I wish that I could earn and perform and life hack my way into deeper life with God. But it should also be a source of great comfort and freedom for us because it should be comforting to know that when we feel like God feels distant and we wish he was more of a reality in our lives, we wish our faith was stronger and deeper, we're in good company with every person in this room and with the characters in the pages of scripture. And it should give us freedom to know that the answer to getting deeper life with God is not that we just need to find the right book or the right way to journal. It's that life with God is a long journey filled with ups and downs along the way. So as we close, what do we do with this? And I just wanna encourage you, keep going. Don't lose heart. Keep pressing in to life with God. Paul wrote to the Christians in his day and he said this, He said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then one day we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let's not let the dimness of life with God that we often experience today distract us from the fullness of life with God that will one day be ours. And then this may seem a bit paradoxical based on the last point, but let's also continue to press in. Continue to read scripture, continue to pray, continue to lean into community, continue to gather to worship. We don't do those things because as we do them, we earn more of God's presence, but we do those things out of God's grace he's given to us in order to cultivate life with him. But remember, growth will be slow. Hard times will come. Let's take those hard things to God in prayer and before our community. And though it won't be quick or easy, let's watch as God shows up and is faithful to us, just as he was faithful to Isaac. Let me pray for us. 
But Father, more than anything else, we want to know you more deeply. But Lord, we confess that oftentimes you feel distant. It feels like growth is slow. Father, I pray that, just pray for every person in this room or watching online, Lord, that we would know more of your grace in our lives. We would just sit and rest in your presence and your goodness to us. Father, I pray that you help us keep our eyes fixed on you. Let's keep going until the end of our lives.